His carefully tailored life was about to fall apart. In his seemingly perfect life, there were secrets that could sink it all. Desperate and with a deadline approaching, he made decisions that would change everything. He hoped he would rise from the ashes like a phoenix. But justice had something entirely different planned for him. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy, and today we are headed to Dublin, Ireland, where the lively spirit of the Irish dances through the cobbled streets. But let's be honest, what we're really interested in is a pint of the finest Guinness. By we, I mean all you beer drinkers out there. I'll stick to my rum and a big old plate of fish and chips. Let's get started. Esther O'Brien was a lovely young lady from Tremor County, Waterford. She was the youngest in her family and had a cheerful, friendly demeanor and a natural and deep love for children. After secondary school, Esther, armed with dreams and a suitcase, bid farewell to Tremor and set sail for the academic seas of Dublin. A mere two hours away from her roots, she dove headfirst into the undergraduate psychology program at University College Dublin. After taking a few courses, she decided that psychology wasn't what she thought it would be. So she shifted her focus and coursework towards word processing and computers. She was a pioneer in that field. While she went to school in Dublin, she lived with her sister and her family and helped out in whatever ways she could. Esther babysat, cooked meals, and regaled her sister with stories of college and her blooming love life. Esther's sister decided to immortalize the sisterly love she felt for Esther by naming her own daughter Esther. Although her college years were a very happy time, tragedy struck Esther in her 20s when she lost the love of her life in a motorcycle accident. Shortly after his death, she discovered she was carrying his baby. She turned to her family, who provided immense support during this difficult time. They helped her settle into a new home and start life with the baby. But life had another cruel twist for Esther. A few months after giving birth, her baby passed away from sudden infant death syndrome. Despite this second tragedy, she was able to hold herself together and poured her remaining energy into her work. One of Esther's professional roles led her to an upscale hotel called the Shelburne. It was there in 1986 that she crossed paths with a young man named Frank McCann. They were introduced through mutual friends. Esther was 30 and Frank was 26. At the time, Esther was romantically involved with someone else, but that relationship came to its end a few months later when she chose to remain in Ireland rather than accompany her partner to Australia. Learning of Esther's recent single status, Frank, intrigued with her, asked their friends to put in a good word. He came into her life quietly, but quickly. Their relationship swiftly blossomed, and they married in the summer of 1987, only one year after they began dating. Frank McCann was one of five children. He was born in 1960 and grew up in the peaceful South Dublin suburb of Tiernier. His father and grandfather were Coopers, they built the large wooden barrels used to store whiskey and other alcohols, and they taught the craft to Frank. As a young man, Frank was actively involved in swimming and later became a noted international swimmer for Ireland. He loved the sport and in time became a well-known and revered swim coach, one who coached Olympians. He also moved up in swimming circles, 
rubbing elbows, and becoming the best of friends with other well-known swimmers, Olympians, and swim coaches. Swimming and coaching, even at a high level, didn't pay so well. So Frank also worked as a cooper, like his father and grandfather. In 1982, at age 22, his job was phased out, so he decided to set up his own business. He founded Irish Craft Coopers. Frank was known for his discipline, his conservative image, athleticism, clean living, and aversion to alcohol and smoking. He exhibited a tough-minded, gruff, and forceful demeanor in business, always striving to get his way and not hesitating to pursue legal action for unpaid invoices, although he himself was known to be slow to pay his own bills. Perhaps it was his decisive, driven nature that attracted Esther to him. She told her sister that even though Frank didn't drink, he was still very much fun to be around, and besides, she'd always have a sober driver. After their marriage, the initial romance between the McCanns quickly faded, and Frank's demeanor shifted. He became distant. Perhaps it was his busy schedule, working two jobs, or that Esther was his, so she wasn't really much of a priority for him. Who knows for sure? But within a year of being married, he became noticeably colder towards his wife. Her friends noticed that Esther did all she could to ensure that everything was perfect for him. An example of this was that Frank was staunchly anti-smoking, and Esther had always loved to smoke. She would walk outside of her and Frank's home to smoke, even in the worst of weather. It's interesting that someone who abhorred smoking would marry a smoker, but in the 1980s in Ireland, smoking was widely accepted by most. Esther felt Frank growing more and more distant. She suggested they seek marriage counseling, but according to Esther, Frank believed the source of their relationship problems lay with her. They certainly had a lot on their plates. Frank worked long hours between his business and swimming, and Esther wanted a baby badly. After a year and a half of marriage, they still didn't have one, which depressed Esther. She wasn't feeling physically well either. Imagine her dismay when Frank began claiming that his wife was infertile, even though she had experienced a previous pregnancy. In 1989, Esther decided to quit working to address her health problems. She found out that they'd been related to her thyroid. She dedicated her time to staying at home on Butterfield Avenue, where she and Frank resided. Without her income, there was more pressure on Frank. In an effort to ease this burden, Esther began running computer lessons from her home for young women looking to improve their prospects or re-enter the workforce after having children. Her work was more about helping others than earning a paycheck. In November 1989, Frank's cooperage factory caught fire. The fire was deemed an act of arson. There were two initial burn sites found on the premises, and both had been started with some type of accelerant. The subsequent investigation yielded no leads, and no one was charged with the incident. At this time, Frank turned his attention more towards coaching and swimming. He became a senior figure in the world of Irish swimming, and was likely to have become the head of the National Association. Esther regularly helped him at fundraising functions. From the outside looking in, she and Frank were what they appeared to be, a happily married couple. Following the fire, Frank sold his business, but two years later he and his brother would open a pub which they named the Cooperage. Around the time, he and Esther took in Frank's little sister Jeanette, who at the age of 17 had discovered she was pregnant. Esther happily took Jeanette under her wing, 
and supported her through the process of giving up her child for adoption. She could connect with Jeanette, as she had been very young when she got pregnant and had to have a baby without the father present. Esther attended Jeanette's doctor's appointments and was present at the hospital when the baby, a little girl, was born. The baby was named Jessica, and a few days after her birth, Frank and Esther decided to adopt the little niece, which was something that Jeanette agreed with 100%. She couldn't imagine her daughter having a better home than with Frank and Esther. Going forward, Esther diligently documented all of Jessica's milestones in a diary stored on her computer using floppy disks. She recorded things like what she bought for Jessica, to where, to when she fell ill, and the fact that Jessica brought light into the eyes of her doting grandmothers. She recorded all the steps she was taking to complete the adoption process. By the summer of 1992, this process was drawing to a close and Esther anxiously awaited the adoption board's decision. While her happy focus was on the adoption, Esther had other, less cheerful challenges to face. Her sister Marion, with whom she was very close, had a recurrence of cancer, which devastated Esther. She did her best to support her sister, while at the same time anxiously awaiting good news from the adoption board, who seemed to be delaying the decision on Jessica's future. It was taking what seemed like an abnormally long time, to the point where it prompted both Esther and Jeanette to write letters seeking clarification. They were hoping to light a fire under the board's decision-making process. Speaking of fires, back at the McCann house, Frank was dealing with some gas. Not the human kind. He smelled something strange and reported a gas leak on July 3, 1992, which was examined by Board Gosh, the natural gas company in Ireland. No leak was detected at that time, but on July 16th, less than two weeks later, another gas leak was reported, and the gas technician classified it as a Class A leak, which required urgent attention. Ten days later, on July 26th, yet another gas leak was reported, but on an inspection, nothing was found. Just two days later, on the morning of July 28th, a fourth gas leak was reported by Frank McCann. Esther smelled gas this time. It was early in the morning when she woke up with an awful headache. Without turning on any lights, she grabbed the baby up, took her outside, and placed Jessica into her car, then rolled the car down the driveway without turning it on. The smell had been so strong, she was afraid that any spark could ignite the gas that was heavy in the air around her. She used her cell phone to call Frank, who in turn called the gas company. When the emergency gas worker arrived, he discovered a significant amount of gas in the hallway, noting that if the gas had been ignited by something as simple as even turning on a light, the result would have been catastrophic. Further inspection revealed that the fourth reported gas leak occurred because two recently joined pipes were entirely pulled apart. This was something that shouldn't have happened unless the pipe was extremely heated. These pipes, located under the floorboards, had been installed just a week before as part of a gas meter upgrade, intended to resolve the previous issues at the house. While the source of the gas leak was identified, but unexplainable, that wasn't the only issue the family was having at the house. In the early morning hours of August 14th, Esther woke up to the sound of the phone ringing 
and discovered that her electric blanket was on fire. The blanket, which was folded and left at the end of the bed, had not been placed there by Esther the night before. At least she couldn't remember putting it there. Although Frank wasn't in the room initially, he arrived as Esther was attempting to extinguish the fire. He pulled the plug from the wall, and once the fire was out, he left the house to go to Blessington in response to an alarm at the pub. The three inhabitants of the McCann house couldn't seem to catch a break. Esther was left bewildered and informed her family that she had no idea how the blanket got there. She simply couldn't remember putting it on the bed. Frank was frustrated with her. He told her over and over to be careful and to remember to turn the gas off on the stove. He was frustrated that she couldn't remember putting the electric blanket at the foot of the bed, let alone leaving it on. It was August, though. What would she need an electric blanket for, anyway? With Frank's encouragement, she made an appointment with her doctor. She felt like she was constantly forgetting things. And life for Frank wasn't getting easier, either. He was getting threatening calls and letters, both at home and at the pub. He had to call police when he arrived at the pub one day to find the words, Burn, you bastard, painted on the back wall. Strangely, he wasn't the only pub owner getting calls. Another pub received a call that said basically, pay up or we'll burn your place down, which made no sense to the owner who didn't owe anyone any money. Fortunately, the McCann home returned to a semblance of normalcy after that accident. Esther redirected her focus to finalizing the adoption application for Jessica and addressing the delays with the adoption board. Frustrated with the board's responses to her letters, Esther arranged a meeting between Frank, herself, and the adoption board at the Rotunda Maternity Hospital on September 4, 1992. Her goal was simple. She wanted to ensure that all the necessary documents were submitted, and she wanted to finalize the adoption. The day before her meeting with the board, the house was checked once more for gas leaks and everything was deemed safe. That afternoon, Esther spoke with her sister Marion. Marion had wanted Esther to come for a visit, but Esther said, No, I'm going to stay. I'm going to have it out with Frank tonight. We're going to find out what's going on with the adoption. At 8.30 that night, 18-month-old Jessica was finally convinced to hit the hay. After a day filled with mastering the art of toddlering and dropping her newest mommy and daddy words, she decided it was time for her beauty sleep. With the baby asleep in the cot, Esther's day didn't end. She had a client over for a computer lesson which finished shortly before 10 p.m. Around this time, Frank came home as he was prone to do. He'd have a cup of tea and relax for a little while before going back to the pub to clean up. As he entered the house, he saw a mark on the outside of his dining room door. He was alarmed by this because of all the strange things that had been happening to him and Esther. So he called the police to tell them about it. After a short break, he had more work to do at the pub, so he left around 11. He closed the pub at around 1.30 and came home around 1.50. When he got close, he saw lights and people outside. Then he realized they were at his house. He took a closer look, jumped out of the car, and ran up towards the house, crying and screaming. The house was filled with thick smoke, and flames poured out of the front door and windows. The neighbors raced to find a ladder with hopes of raising it to the bedroom window. Frank had arrived just before the fire department. Amidst the chaos in the front garden, he stood feeling hopeless, pleading and screaming for his wife and child. When he saw the ladder go up, he tried to climb it. 
Neighbors held him back, and seemingly overcome with anxiety, he collapsed to the ground. When the paramedics arrived, he stood up and walked with them away from the scene so they could treat him. Within an hour, what initially appeared as an uncontrollable inferno, the fire had been extinguished. Tragically, Esther and baby Jessica were found lifeless upstairs. They had succumbed to the noxious fumes that permeated the house. Jessica was still in her crib, and Esther was found in the hallway at the exit to her bedroom. This indicated that she was trying to get to Jessica rather than save herself by climbing out her window. When firefighters entered the house, they immediately saw things that indicated arson. The charred remains of a table, a gas cylinder, and a blowtorch in the burnt hallway suggested foul play. They were at the seat of the fire, or where the fire began. Between you and me, I always thought the word was seed, as in seed of the fire, or where the fire germinated. But let's keep that our little secret. Frank McCann needed to be questioned. He provided a voluntary statement on September 5, 1992. His interrogation lasted five hours. Superintendent Pat King and Detective Inspector Anthony Sork spearheaded the investigation. Frank detailed his actions that night and told the investigators about the threats they'd been receiving at home and at the pub. He also told them about the words burn and bastard he'd found inside the phone book he often used at the pub. In the wake of the fire, police handed out flyers and went door-to-door asking neighbors if they'd seen or heard anything. One of them reported hearing two loud banging sounds and then the sound of a car racing off but no one else stepped forward with any new information. Frank had to go on a short work trip to America, and while he was there, the gas company did an examination of the house. They found nothing wrong in the wiring or the gas lines. Given there were no gas leaks or other issues in the house, the police turned their investigation towards Frank. The fire appeared to be arson, and McCann's behavior indicated that he was pushing suspicions toward the mystery caller who couldn't be identified. Frank's odd behavior wasn't noticed only by the police. Esther's family thought he was acting weird and inappropriate as well. Esther's closest sister, Marion, was away that night, staying with her husband's parents in Tremor. In the early hours, her husband, Billy, telephoned to say that Esther and Jessica had died in the fire. She remembers little of that night, but was told afterwards that she had started to say that Frank McCann had killed them and that those around her had shushed her up. On the day of Esther's funeral, which also happened to be Frank's mother's birthday, he spoke very little at their funeral and referenced the other man in Esther's life, pausing for effect before naming the young man. This was a young man with special needs that Esther had fundraised for. In a way, it was a sweet tribute to his late wife, who was buried with baby Jessica in the same coffin but many thought him trying to be funny and entertaining was inappropriate. The weird part was, after the funeral, he opened the doors of his pub and had a surprise birthday party for his mother inside it. He was also overheard shouting lewd remarks along the lines of, I'm a free man, to a group of adolescent girls as he drove home from Esther's burial. As the police talked to friends and co-workers of Frank's, They heard rumors that he was having an affair with a 16-year-old who worked at the pub. Police searched the bins and dumpsters around the pub looking for evidence and found a piece of carpeting that matched the carpet in Frank's house. 
It had burn marks on it. It didn't take police long to find more evidence against Frank and what they believed to be his motive. You see, Frank was keeping secrets, a lot of them. The first was very important when it came to the investigation, and that was that he had a child. The baby was born a couple months after he and Esther were married. Worse was that the mother was underage and was under Frank's care as a swimmer. Even worse is that she was disabled. I can't explain how this didn't come to the police's attention years earlier, but it didn't. Instead, the girl had the baby and gave it up for adoption. A friend of the family, Father Michael Cleary, asked Frank to help with the cost of the child being born and a payment to the family for its care. Frank was not receptive to this at first, but soon agreed to pay for the birth and gave a one-time payment to the girl's father. The girl was 17 when she gave birth, but was 16 when she became pregnant. Years later, the girl's mother had found out that Frank and Esther were wanting to adopt a child and told the adoption board about what had happened between him and their underaged, disabled daughter. Based on these allegations, the board quickly deemed that Frank was ineligible for adoption and told him so. But they didn't tell Esther, and neither did Frank. He went along with her, pretending to prod the adoption board to make a favorable and quick decision, but the truth was, he already knew they weren't going to get that baby. It was then he allegedly decided that his secrets would stay hidden if Esther and the baby were gone. When confronted with these allegations, Frank said he would never hurt Esther or the baby. He was going to tell Esther, but was waiting for the right time. Not only that, but he and his lawyer intended to appeal the board's decision because Frank denied the sexual misconduct allegations against him. Despite these excuses, Frank was arrested on November 4th, only two months after his wife's death, for causing an explosion, which was strange. But this allowed police 48 hours to question him. During that time, he made a full confession. He was released while the police prepared to rearrest him for murder. I can't explain how that happened, but while he was free, he was admitted to a mental health facility. He made friends with a female patient there and moved in with her after his stay. In April of the following year, he was arrested and charged with murder. His trial began in January of 1994. At the trial, one of the first officers on the scene told the jury he had seen a small table sitting in the hallway. On top of it was a gas cylinder. The table was badly charred. Officers also found a blowtorch outside the McCann's home. It had been switched on and was set at the lowest setting. While searching the house for clues, investigators found two smoke detectors in the attic, still in their packaging. They'd never been installed. The fire officer took the stand to report that when he got to the house, there wasn't a lot of heat coming from the home, which meant that the fire had burnt fast and hot but was short-lived. He also noted that he could tell by the way the fire burned that the front door to the house had been open. When police studied the threatening letters that Frank had claimed to have been sent, it was determined that there were a number of common features with the writing style of Frank McCann. They couldn't tie the handwriting in the phone book to Frank, but another police officer would give evidence of a conversation he had with Frank after the fire had taken his wife. The officer was asked to secure the crime scene when a man approached him. The officer didn't know who the man was, but would later find out that it was Frank himself. 
He said the man approached him and was making jokes about barbecues and later made a reference about life insurance. He joked that he tried to take out an insurance policy on his wife a couple weeks before, but wasn't successful. Then he said if he had been the one to die in the fire, his wife would have been a wealthy woman, but that she didn't have much use for his money now. My guess is that the officer chuckled out of politeness while thinking, what a weirdo. Midway through the trial, the jury would hear that Frank had been rushed from the prison to a nearby hospital when he tried to light himself on fire with a can of aerosol deodorant while in the bathroom. The prison staff reacted immediately and rushed him to St. James Hospital, where he was treated for burns to his face and body. His wounds were fairly serious, but it was determined that he was not fit to withstand trial. Two and a half years later, and four years after her murder, Frank would begin his second trial. The prosecution laid out its case, saying that Frank had attempted to murder Esther on numerous occasions, twice by gas, once by tampering with the brakes in her car, and once by lighting an electric blanket on fire. And finally he succeeded on that sad September day. The attempts were always made in situations where both Esther and Jessica were together. What finally took them both was smoke inhalation. Esther had some burning to her body while Jessica's had not been exposed to any fire. She had died with her pacifier still in her mouth. Frank's hired barman was called to the stand. He testified that he knew about the threats being made at the pub, and he said the day after the fire killed Esther, he had answered the phone for one of the calls. The caller had asked for Frank McCann, who wasn't there at the time, and then the caller jokingly asked if McCann had gotten the bad news before the caller hung up. The barman said the caller had a northern Irish twang and that whoever had made the call had been trying to disguise his voice. The prosecution believed these phone calls were made by Frank himself and that Frank had also written the threatening letters in an attempt to pull attention away from himself. Frank had told his brothers that there had been a suicide pact between him and Esther. He said they had decided together that they intended to die together. Then he said he poured gas in the hallway and lit a match, but he burnt his fingertips and accidentally dropped the match, which set the gas on fire. Frank would later deny that he said this. What the defense went with was that if Frank had lit the fire, he too would have been caught up in it. He would have been burned or injured. They were also critical of the so-called tests that had been performed on the blowtorch and canisters that had been found on scene. The defense argued that no hydrocarbon residue had been found on the scene, which indicated that no gas had been used to start the fire. There was never a gas can of any kind found anywhere. They also claimed that the whole adoption issue was blown far out of proportion. The girl in question would not appear before the adoption board herself, and the board's decision wouldn't have stood up to scrutiny. If Frank had the opportunity to contest the board's decision like he planned to do, he would have won. Before the defense rested, Frank took the stand in his own defense. When he did, he began to have a panic attack. He lost control, began shaking and hyperventilating. Esther's sister thought it was all fake, just a ploy to get the jury's sympathy. The court was given a recess. When Frank was deemed fit to speak, he told the court that he had been under extreme duress when he admitted to killing Esther. He had, hadn't slept for days and had suffered from several panic attacks, but was given no medical attention. 
He said he signed the documents without reading them because he simply wanted to go home. He said the guards had called him a murdering bastard and that he should commit suicide. The mental abuse was followed by physical abuse as he had been slapped around the face and head and was shown pictures of his dead wife and child. He said he had told Esther about the problems with the adoption and that she knew about everything. After 41 days, a diverse jury of six men and six women determined unanimously that Frank McCann was guilty of Esther and Jessica McCann's murders. They were satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that he had acted intentionally and repeatedly to end their lives. He was sentenced to serve two concurrent life sentences. Some people believe that Frank was a pedophile and that he abused more than just one girl. This is because he was very close friends with two other swim coaches who were taken to trial for sexual misconduct. An article in the Irish Mirror said that McCann, a former president of the Leinster branch of the Irish Amateur Swimming Association, is named in a report about sexual misconduct within the swim organization. It reported on the nightmare endured by some of the country's most promising young athletes at the hands of coaches George Gibney and Derry O'Rourke. The report detailed how shortly before Christmas 1990, while Irish swimmers were preparing to go to the World Championships in Perth, Australia, a male swimmer confided in an assistant coach that he had been sexually abused by Gibney when he was 11. After the championships, the swimmer told a medical officer who worked for the Irish Amateur Swimming Association that the abuse had occurred. The officer's advice was that it would be his word against Gibney's and that he should just get on with it, which is atrocious and neglectful, in my opinion. The swimmer then went to Frank McCann, the then president of the Leinster branch, who said he would deal with the matter. The assistant coach, the swimmer originally confided in, said she also went to McCann about the abuse the swimmer had suffered. The Leinster branch, in its submission to the Murphy inquiry, stated that McCann did not report any complaint and Gibney went on with his abusive acts. The report said that McCann wrote to the inquiry team saying that they should acknowledge that he did not obstruct any complaints made by Gibney. The report went on and detailed several heinous crimes perpetrated by George Gibney and Derry O'Rourke. And when I say several, I mean multiple children, multiple times. These two men, George Gibney and Derry O'Rourke, often sat in the kitchen together at Frank McCann's house, as they were all good friends. After almost 30 years, Frank McCann is still in jail. He began an application for parole last year, but soon after withdrew it. As for Esther's family, they believe that a life sentence should mean life. It seems that Frank McCann's family didn't support him either. He had killed his own niece, after all. Frank McCann's life, shaped by the choices he made, is a testament to the darker side of humanity and his selfishness. There will be no phoenix rising from these ashes, only the haunting remains of a life shadowed by unforgivable deeds. For those of you who like to put faces to names, I will post pictures to Patreon, Facebook, and Instagram. There are links to those in the show description. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks for supporting the podcast. Your reviews and five-star ratings make my day. But even better is your word-of-mouth recommendation to friends and the true crime community. I do have a few very special thank yous. 
The first is from Elisa and Las Noobs, who says, Can't stop. Five stars. Hi, Sandy. I found your site through another podcast. Since then, I can't stop listening to yours. I love your voice and the way you deliver. Thank you very much. Uh, we have another one from Jersey Girl in Vermont, who says, Excellent. Such sad stories. Host is really good. Keeps me interested from beginning to end. Thank you very much. And finally, great show. Thanks. I like those sweet and simple ones, too. Thank you, Max Ross 11. Thank you for letting me be part of your day. I wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Who doesn't? But I gotta admit, after a while, all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips. Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as the Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood, using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal. It's available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you.